everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. You missed that one, huh? Well, no, because I want to. I'm going to throw it in. Everybody, hey, everybody, welcome to our uh, economic action team webinar with Mark Shepard here on uh, Wednesday. And I'm not going to say night because it's a whole bunch of different times for all of you all over the world. But Mark was just talking about weather a little bit, and uh, <laughs> my introduction to Mark today was I got a text pretty early, and and it said something like badass winds coming through here today and, or last night and um, tornadoes don't know what's going on. <laughs> so that was pretty early, Mark, that I got that. So, um, well, well pretty, hey, pretty much the all day was try to figure out, you know, what, what kind of damage was done and try to stitch things together and catch animals that ran away and, yeah, so it was a heck of a day. Yeah. Um, well, we've got lots that Mark's going to talk about again this week, so I'm just going to make sort of introductions very quick. Um, first, all of you, you've got a little dashboard on the right of your screen, and that's where you can put in questions and comments, and Mark and I and our other staff, and we've got a couple other people on here with us that will be looking, you know, um, I actually um, thought that, that the person in Bangladesh, I thought was our Mark, was our Mark from Bangladesh, but it, it wasn't. He's not on, so whoever's... Pretty cool. He, somebody else on here from Bangladesh. Um, so um, we're going to just cut, cut quick on the introductions, just a couple things. One, the Facebook group. If you have not yet gotten an invitation, send me an email and I'll get you one for sure. Um, at the end, when Mark's done today, I'm not going to do it now because I want to get him going right away. I'm going to show um, the um, Restoration Ag Smart Members site, which I've actually been trying to get all of you made as members of that, because that's where there's also a number of other free webinars and, and talks and different things that Mark has done, um, and other really great information about Restoration Ag. Um, one thing while I'm remembering it, tomorrow I'm going to be a guest on a show from Regeneration International, and and it's going to be with a group of other people. If any of you have any questions that you want me to ask them tomorrow, put it in the chat or email me later or something, and I'll just make sure I get it to them. That, that's at 2 o'clock my time tomorrow, which is mountain time. So if you get it to me before that, if you've got some, I, some, something you're wanting to learn about and, and share it, there'll be a bunch of people from all over the world there from different groups. So if you want to have something that way. Let's see, what else? Um, we're over 500 members now, really cool. Um, had almost 200 that had registered for tonight. We, we're getting mm -hmm. tons of people coming on here. Um, so thank you, everybody. But lastly, this is your team. Mark's here to help you become better farmers and, and have aspirations and just to, to do things in a very you know earth earth-friendly and profitable way for yourself. So I think I'll use that as to stop here and turn it over to Mark, and all yours, man, go for it. All right, and I did try to advance the slides, and I can't do that, Wayne, so you'll have to. Uh, so 
All right. Of course, aerial photograph of New Forest Farm on the uh, on the front cover. Can you see my black cursor there? I'm pointing to my name. Do you see that or no? Uh, no. What if, I, what if I share the screen? What happens there? Um, you know what? Maybe I can do this. Let me see this. Let me if I turn the keyboard over to you. That might be what I need to do. Yeah. To mark. Let me do that. Let's see what you do if that. If I do that, maybe it gets to where you can have it now. So what happened now? Is it theoretically uh, mine? It should be. You, you, you should have probably gotten an invitation. I, I had to say yes that I had given it to you. Let me make sure. I'm going to do it once more. Yeah, it says that you got it. But there's, uh, it's not, it's not. Wait, wait, it did one of those blinky things. <laughs> we'll figure this out one of the years. So why don't you yeah. just go ahead and advance it, Wayne, to the next oh, slide. Okay. Yeah, and I, I've got to now Notice find it. Notice how I uh, put the name here that a restoration agriculture forest ecology exposition. We don't need to see all of them yet. Um, I chose the word exposition because it's a comprehensive description and explanation of an idea or a theory. Oh, wait a minute. What just happened here? My thing said leave webinar. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Uh, okay, so go to the next one. Reason why I'm picking a, a exposition is we are explaining uh, forest ecology, general ecology, landscape ecology, um, grasslands ecology, wetland ecology as best we possibly can because that's the framework that we have to operate within in order to have a truly permanent agriculture or a permanent culture. And I'll, I'll do a little review here, of course. This shows tree crops by J. Russell Smith, a permanent agriculture. First time I ever saw the two words together, permanent and agriculture written in 1926, a big inspiration for me. It's available free online or print copy from Acres USA. Uh, next slide, Wayne. And now we lost Wayne, right? No, no, I'm here. I just, okay. I don't know. There we go. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in uh, the Industrial East during uh, the collapse of the manufacturing economy. Uh, formerly, on the left, we had rivers running of various different colors every single day. Whenever it would flood, there would be paper mache all over the stream banks. Uh, within a few short years, just by leaving the river alone, it cleaned up. By no longer insulting it by putting in toxins, it, it cleaned itself up. Well, then by adding wastewater treatment plants, it was restored even better. By the time I was in high school, we were canoeing down the river. Next slide, Wayne. Um, and next, once more context, I don't see how anything can be done uh, out of context. Uh, I first went to Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Massachusetts for, to study mechanical engineering where I failed to thrive. I uh, transferred out and went to Unity College in Maine where I thrived in a big way, was uh, one of the top uh, graduates of my class, 1985. Next slide. So I immersed myself, I totally immersed myself in ecological theory, and it's only been in the last you know, 10 or so years that I've realized how deeply this has gone inside of me. And I'm an I'm a ecology textbook fiend. Uh, and these are some of the sources that we've used for this series of, of webinars. Next. And of course, uh, I ran away, first of all, to uh, East Central Alaska 
and uh, you can't see my cursor says Wayne, but if you go straight ahead to that pointy mountain, you go around it to the left in front of the, the one with the big huge uh, landslide on it, then you go around it to the right, and on the other side of it was where my homestead cabin was, and lived there uh, with my wife uh, and then eventually our infant son, doing what we could to survive within the ecological context. How do we as human beings live on this planet and not screw it up? Next. <clears throat> and again, it's Mount Sanford, 16,236. That's a view from my bedroom window in Alaska. Keep going. Yep. And then it was while in Alaska that I discovered the permaculture. Uh, the word permaculture, the permaculture designer's manual started with permaculture one, went to permaculture two. Next, uh, by Bill Mollison. I began a written correspondence with Bill Mollison and uh, took some of my training uh, with, directly with Bill via correspondence. I'd write something and then mail it to him and then he would review my, my work and send it back. He'd send me to interview with various, with various different teachers uh, around the world. Um, Next. And eventually he uh, granted me a diploma of permaculture design. And what I like about permaculture design is that I've tried to give this, uh, this presentation on forest ecology. I just can't take it out of the context of permaculture because we as human beings have a responsibility to live in an ecologically sound way. We have a responsibility to live on this planet, take care of our families and our children and others, and not mess up our nest. And the white the sentence in white here uh, it has been one of the central goals of, of my life ever since I first heard this, and that the aim of permaculture is to create systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable. That's what this webinar series is all about, to help you to create systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable. I am not here to teach you how to draw pretty pictures. This is not about permaculture design. This is about systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable. We are practitioners. We're doing it on the ground. We're growing food. We're raising families. We're participating in the economy for real, not just drawing pictures. Next. <clears throat> it's a radical difference. I love that it's based on an ethic, care for the earth, care for people, and some sort of equitable economic system. Next. <clears throat> Uh, I also, while in Alaska, discovered this book written by David Holmgren. He was one of the uh, co-originator of, of the permaculture of the term and the, and the methodology. Next, uh, in Holmgren's book, he set out a, a series of, of principles, and we unfold permaculture uh, on the ground um, uh, by attempting to uh, follow these sets of principles. Next slide, Wayne. Yeah, I don't know why, but it's not moving right now. We gotta, what's going on? Everybody look at that spiral in the middle and, and put your finger in your nose, look at the ceiling and spin around. And uh, we're still, <laughs> this, whole, this whole series that we're doing on forest ecology, really, it's all about principle number one. We're going to observe, uh, imitate, and interact. We have to observe nature imitate its systems and interact with it. This is not a, a uh, uh, this is not a couch sport. This is a roll up the sleeves and get your fingernails dirty kind of um, operation. We are going to actually observe nature. We're going to learn how it works. We're going to imitate how it works and then interact with the system that we've created uh, that we have designed and implemented following nature's lead. 
and all the other principles follow as well. All of these will be embedded in what we talk about. Next slide, please. And from Mollison, once again, work with nature instead of fight against it. Uh, do the least amount of work that has the greatest long-term effect. And think about that. Growing anything, any kind of crop for any kind of food or, uh, or fiber uh, or medicine, there's so much work if you, if you try to grow something that doesn't really belong there. But if you just look at the ditch on the side of the road, there are plants growing in the ditch on the side of the road, whether you're in Arizona or Bangladesh or in you know, northern Alaska or even in Saudi Arabia, there, there are weeds growing in the ditch on the side of the road. Pay attention to those weeds. They know something. They have some tricks. Let's learn what they are, learn how they act, learn how they behave, imitate that, and work with them instead of fight against them. Next slide. And we'll go through all of these. These, these original uh, Holmgren principles and the Mollison principles are fundamental to this whole entire presentation. And then, of course, a lot of, uh, a lot of my work is inspired by uh, Yeoman's Water for Every Farm, the Key Line Plan, next. And we'll deal with that later on in a separate uh, set of webinars. What I like about uh, uh, Water for Every Farm, it set this out. And this is, this is really important. It has a, an order of operations. When going to a piece of land, we're going to concentrate on things uh, systematically. We're going to deal, first of all, with the things that we have the least amount of immediate control over, uh, and then go down to the last thing that we're going to do is the stuff that we have a lot of immediate control over, and that will change rather quickly. If you look at something like the climate, yeah, we do have an effect on the climate, and we can have a little effect on it, uh, but it's not dramatic and it's not fast. Um, if we live on mountains, there's really not much we can do about that except for blast the mountain apart. Uh, yet down at the bottom, soil, we can play with soil. Uh, I can go ahead and, and lay 35,000 tons of gypsum on a piece of ground and totally change the soil chemistry in the snap of the fingers. That's a real quick change. It's real easy to do. It's one of the last things we do. We, if, we're gonna, if you consider this on a scale of like redwoods and radishes, instead of doing the radishes first because we think I'm going to get a quick cash flow in three weeks, if you do that, if you concentrate on number eight, work on the soil, work on the soil, work on the soil, you'll never get out of that. And look at where, where conventional chemical agriculture is and look where organic agriculture is today. It's stuck on tweaking the soil, tweaking the soil, tweaking the soil. They barely get into pest and disease cycles, etc. And then how do they deal with pest and disease cycles? You fight against them with more ingredients. They'll never get off that quick return, short-sighted thinking. Whereas if we started thinking about redwoods first, knowing that in order to get a redwood, we have to go through a long series of succession through a period of years in order to get these redwoods established, we'll start with radishes. And so we need to be thinking long-term uh, first, deal with that first, the big issues first, climate, landscape, water, roads are more significant, more long-term. Don't worry about the, uh, the quick turnaround stuff until later. Next slide, please. <clears throat> Oh, and Wayne's going to have to pay attention tonight. And so from uh, Alaska, my wife and my, uh, uh, myself and my, our infant son, Eric, who happens to be now 22, he's a geologist and he's uh, doing some field work up in the mountains in Utah somewhere, we moved to this part of Wisconsin to actually implement our vision of an ecological agriculture, which uh, you know, has come to be known as restoration agriculture. And that's our house, built our own house, earth bank, built in, we produce our own power, yada, yada, roof water collection, et cetera. 
Next slide. We're not just talking about it or designing systems for others. We're living it ourselves. And, and if you look at the context that we're in, the homesteads uh, in this picture, the homesteads have a little grove of trees around them to protect them from the harsh elements. Uh, and everything is corn and soy, corn and soy, corn and soy in various different contour strip patterns, which is nice. A lot of erosion if we look in the foreground. There's some erosion down below. Uh, and yet there's this wacko crazy guy with this, this uh, bizarre-looking ecologically designed farm. And for you to have a farm like this, a ranch like this, whatever you want to call it, that's our goal is, is we want to have actual practitioners on the ground actually changing the ecology of this planet, interacting with the hydrology, uh, rainfall patterns, uh, wildlife, pest and disease cycles, natural succession, the natural processes of soil building, water purification, and on and on and on, carbon sequestration. Next slide. <laughs> Wrote a book. Next slide. Buy it. Acres USA. <laughs> Next slide, Wayne. Okay, so, so distilled short and sweet, this is the restoration agriculture process, is to identify our biomes and its keystone species. This is primarily what we're working on in this uh, webinar series right here. Although it's one little bullet point, identify your biomes and the keystone species, it's, it's vast in what it encompasses. And so that's part of what I want to make clear here. I couldn't write it all in a book. It would be, it'd be volumes to write it all in a book. So let's have a discussion about it. And since each one of us is going to be interacting with our own particular property, uh, on the fly, interactively through time, we'll be able to teach ourselves and learn as we go. We'll do our earthworks, our water, water management, we'll establish edible woody polycultures, and everything will follow the pattern that our water management pattern sets up. We cash flow through our agroforestry practices, and we manage forever and ever and ever. Next slide, please, Wayne. All right, we've got to go through some definitions. A forest is a three-dimensional ecological system dominated by trees and other woody vegetation that exists in dynamic interaction with the earth-air matrix of the landscape. That's an official textbook definition. Someone last week asked about, well, what about grasslands? Do the same principles that we're talking about in forest ecology apply to a grassland? Absolutely, because a grassland isn't a thing in and of itself. A grassland is a phase uh, in ecological system development with uh, enough water, with uh, a long enough time between disturbances, fire, uh, landslide, um, chainsaws, etc., a grassland will eventually uh, change into a forested landscape. So forest is not just the trees. It's uh, all of the woody vegetation, and it's the interactions with the, with the planet itself, the atmosphere, um, and atmospheric interactions are really, really important, especially when we're talking about trees. Next slide. Forests come in various different shapes and sizes. I wish I was the uh, I had the ability to change these slides because we've got quite a few that we can pop through here. This is in in Africa. Uh, a lot of the the shape of the vegetation. We'll deal with this a little bit later tonight. The patterns the structured layer of it, the shapes of the trees, are determined by weather, by soil, uh, by available moisture. If you notice, these trees have rather large trunks and limited uh, branches and leaves. 
These guys are designed to not lose water. They're designed to store that water in their trunks for a long, long period of time. Next slide. So this is a forested ecosystem. This is a forested ecosystem. There are some places where it rains almost all the time, three, four, five, six hundred inches of rain a year. Water you know, can become a problem in production. It actually also sets up all kinds of uh, issues with fungal uh, diseases and so on, with light penetration. Next slide. This is a forested ecosystem. Uh, Apache forests, uh, tall trees, shrubs, bushes, vines, scrubby ground cover in various stages of growth. And in this picture we see on the, on the right is some wheel tracks that looks like it's fairly regularly traveled by some kind of farm vehicle. Then there's like overgrown pastures, some pink flowers in the mid ground, some big older standard trees. Uh, and all kinds of um, various brush in between. This is a forested ecosystem. This, uh, this follows, forests follow the same set of rules and regulations, although they aren't rules and regulations. Uh, worldwide, it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's a dry environment, wet environment, cold, hot. Next slide. And I'm showing all these pictures because I want you guys to see all the different forms that uh, these ecosystems take. And wherever you live, it is in your best interest to imitate the form uh, that natural, um, natural vegetation communities take in your area. This is some chaparral, scrubby uh, shrubland um, in uh, California. Next slide. And, and even in a dry, dry situation like this, these trees here may not have seen rain for years. There's a... Uh, uh, I believe it's, oh, see, I can't remember what kind it is. I think it's an almond tree or a pistachio tree somewhere in Iran. And uh, I guess there, it hasn't had any rain for 120 years. And it's just, a, it's like the only tree as far as the eye can see. If you were to try to go to this place right here and establish, go back right there. If you were to try to go there and establish a, a food forest, you have this concept in your mind of what a food forest is. Your concept is wrong. It's merely an idea. What we have to do is observe reality and imitate that. So if this is what your place looks like, this is the type of reality that we can strive for. And yes, trees are part of the system. Next slide. Where I was up in the far north uh, was in the boreal forest region. You see these very tall, skinny trees adapted to heavy snowfall. <laughs> and a low angle light. It's a solar panel that's vertical. Uh, in, uh, in the uh, equatorial regions, a lot of trees have a very flat canopy this way because the sun's straight up above. In the northern polar regions, since the sun's coming in this way, the tall trees are tall and skinny because then they can optimize their uh, solar collection on the uh, vertical plane. Next slide. Even places like this, the taiga, which is even further north, colder, even more sparse trees, sparse vegetation. This is a forested ecosystem, obeys all the laws of forest ecology. Next slide. And some of my, uh, my favorite forests to study are the miniature forests of the taiga and tundra. The, we can see the uh, evergreen trees, the spruce trees here. They're very sparse, very few and far between. Oftentimes they'll form clumps because they can protect one another from the elements. But all of the ground cover that we see of various different colors here, excuse me, are different woody plants. Uh, much of the maroon and, and uh, pinky purple 
is blueberry. A lot of the yellow is dwarf birch. Next slide. And until we get very, very far north in very harsh climates, we even get down to these miniature forests right here. Uh, you see these little spikes with all the poofy down all over the place. This happens to be a willow forest. This is a, uh, a tundra um, situation uh, just short of the Arctic Circle. And all those little uh, spikes with the uh, puff coming off of it are the catkins on willow trees. This is a forest. Next slide. And if you're in this part of Alaska, you would be best to imitate that type of, uh, that type of forest form. Now, uh, forests can be described different ways, and, and we'll deal with that a little, bit, uh, a little bit later on. They can be delineated, and for ecologists, they need to be able to talk about units of area, units of size, units of similar species, uh, units of similar hydrology, so that they can talk about something discrete and de definable. When you take a bunch of these little uh, forests together and put them in a region, we're talking about a landscape. And a landscape is a somewhat heterogeneous area composed of a group of different ecosystems with different interacting um, earth, air, and, and life going on. And uh, a good idea, a good uh, example of like a landscape would be like the front range of the Rocky Mountains. I believe this is in Basalt, Colorado, this one right here. So within this picture, this photograph, we may have different forests. We may have different tree cover types. So up high in the alpine zone, we may have some of that dwarf willow and dwarf birch. That would be one type of forest ecosystem. Then we have uh, maybe some aspen stands. Maybe we have some gamble oak down lower. Maybe we have some cottonwood on the, on the river bottoms. We have different systems, but they're all in the same place. So that's, that's like the landscape scale. So on a larger viewpoint, we're looking at landscapes. Smaller viewpoint, we're looking at forests. And if we remember from last week, if we get smaller still, we're talking about individual stands of trees, which are clumps and groups of, of uh, different trees that are identifiable. That This is obviously a stand of pine. This is obviously a stand of spruce. This is a group of beech, a group of aspen, et cetera. So the landscape is this larger scale that we're looking at. And, and if you haven't figured it out yet, um, uh, Ecology and restoration agriculture is a complex um, technology. Human beings living on the planet is a complex proposition. I don't know where on earth this whole thing uh, got into our consciousness that things should be simple. What is the one true answer? I mean, there's no such thing as that on this planet. Everything is complex. It's complexity layered within complexity and wrapped within complexities. And so we're going to understand how to, how to view things at the landscape scale, at the stand scale, at the individual scale. We're going to zoom in and out and be totally comfortable with understanding all different levels. Next slide. <clears throat> so ecology is the study of ecological systems, which includes the climate, the physical geography, the physiography, the shape of the hills and valleys and mountains and rivers, the soil, uh, individual plants, individual animals, uh, populations of plants, populations of animals, and then the interactions between all of them. These are all different levels of understanding. We can be studying cows. Uh, we can study cow digestion, which is even smaller. We can, we can study bacteria within the third chamber of a cow's gut. Or we can talk about herds of cattle. Or we can talk about cattle on the front range or bison in the, you know, the whole entire Midwest. All these different scales uh, and the relationships between all these different individuals uh, 
populations of individuals and interactions between all the different uh, plant, uh, the plant communities, the animal communities, the actual physical geography, rivers, streams, etc. That's the study of ecology. We are ecologists, practicing ecologists. Next slide. And I don't want any of you guys to be ashamed at all about using the word, oh yeah, I'm a practicing ecologist. You can't officially call yourself an ecologist ecologist because you haven't published papers with a PhD at the end of your, at the end of your word. Um, uh, we'll talk about that in another couple of slides. Now, forest ecology is the study of the forest organisms in their response to physical factors in the environment, their relationships between them, between individuals, communities, within the whole system, between systems. That's forest ecology. If you're going to focus on the grasses, perhaps you're a grassland ecologist. Um, now, a forest ecologist, and I think my next slide says this, isn't necessarily going to be thinking at the landscape level. Um, but a landscape ecologist will be thinking at the forest level. And the previous slide did show some, some human settlement. As ecologists, we have to include, we have to include humans in this equation because we are part of the biota uh, on this planet. We have all kinds of, uh, you know, things that qualifies the earth element from pavement to buildings, et cetera, the constructed environment. And we have an effect on the vegetation, you know, lawns and uh, rain gardens, that sort of thing. Next slide. So we have to include humans in this. And some of you guys, at least the Colorado people, will know about that, know about this area. This is once again the front range of, of uh, Colorado. A forest ecologist is a landscape ecologist, a person whose our domain of interest and practices encompasses forested landscapes of many different scales, many different scales. And a landscape ecologist will be a forest ecologist, but a forest ecologist is not necessarily a landscape ecologist. Some forest ecologists never look at the larger processes. Some forest ecologists only look at stands of, of, of woody plants, etc. They never uh, expand their lens. As restoration agriculture land management, we are uh, landscape ecologists. We are going to understand things at all these different uh, levels of scale. Next slide, please. Um, I already mentioned this, that we are actual practicing landscape ecologists. We are not confined to research or institutions. And this, this is something that we, we need to be proud of and hold our heads high. We engage in direct interaction with the actual ecology of the planet instead of studying it. And better than that, instead of studying it from books or online, we are actually interacting with the actual ecological systems of this planet. So our knowledge is a fundamentally different kind of knowledge than anyone who has a, you know, an MS or a PhD after their name and calls themselves an ecologist. And I, uh, as a, both a person who has the uh, ecological education and the practical experience, I can attest to the fact that the hands-on practical experience is so much more in-depth and uh, um, uh, amazingly fluid and personal than anything out of the book or online that you would have gotten uh, by being a research ecologist. And so uh, where we are is we are landscape scale ecologists. And we are interactive landscape scale ecologists. Um, now, a restoration agriculture farmer will be a landscape ecologist, but a landscape ecologist might not be a restoration agriculture uh, land manager. Look at this picture uh, right here. This is pretty neat. This is a 14-year-old uh, <coughs> chestnut coppice system. Uh, all these trees were planted at the same time, very high density. 
uh, originally planted at 4,000 stems per acre in part to select for genetics that are superior. They breed, they reproduce faster, produce more nuts, pest and disease resistant, uh, heavier yields. Uh, the, the section on the left has been thinned twice in its life. The first time it was thinned, um, we removed any other species that were coming in that were competing with the chestnuts that we didn't want to, uh, to be growing there. Uh, a lot of what we've been removing in this particular plot is black locust and uh, staghorn sumac. Well, then the, the part on the left in this particular picture here was uh, thinned out this winter. Uh, the largest wood was inoculated with shiitake mushrooms, the smaller wood uh, cut for firewood, the tops um, then uh, chipped with a flail chopper. And now that there's more light getting in on the left, there's more grass over there. Uh, there's not as much of a duff layer going on. And obviously, we're grazing cattle in the system. We're using, we're using knowledge of ecology, of how plants uh, grow together in high density, how they change through time, how they affect one another, how light affects um, change the grass, how the grass changes the trees, how the animals interact with the, the grass, how the animals interact with the trees. We are immersed in this real time uh, and making decisions as we go on the fly. Uh, working with the ecology of the system. Next. <coughs> You've already uh, noticed it, that there's different scales that we're dealing with here. And uh, in, in the ecological world, they talk about the micro, meso, macro, and mega scale. And um, I don't exactly have, I'd have to look it up in the book where it is. But down on the micro scale, they're talking about meters square by meters square. You could be a genuine ecologist studying this little square meter of, of soil. I, I uh, ran into some research about uh, 20 years now uh, about some ecologists who are studying the succession of a caribou dung pile up in like Gates of the Arctic National Park. This caribou dung pile was some 30 years old, and it hadn't completely decomposed yet. And they were watching how these kind of lichens took over first, and these kind of mosses came in. And when I found the research, it had been 30 years, and that's probably close to 20 years ago. Here's this 50-year-old caribou pile that somebody is studying it. That's a micro-scale ecologist, uh, long-term, long time, big time, uh, but very small scale. So you can do things uh, on a huge spatial scale, like planetarian scale, huge time scales, e eons and eons and eons, or short time scales and uh, um, small spaces. Next one. Another way to um, think about uh, ecosystems is with the various different kinds of disturbance, disturbances and the various different kinds of responses that they have to disturbances. And this has a similar, these charts have a similar layout uh, uh, size is the bottom scale. E each of these three blocks has three different uh, examples. So from left to right, uh, 10 to the 0 to, to 10 to the 12 plus is larger space. And uh, on the upper column, going this way, uh, is longer in time. If we look at everything from a disturbance event, like what happened in our neck of the woods last night, huge windstorm, lots of wind shear, trees snap, kaboom. You know, it was like a two-hour event. It was done. Well. The results of that disturbance, that tree got ripped over by the wind, uh, will result in some sort of biotic response, which is the second block here. It may take 
15 seconds to repair? Well, not exactly, because one of the trees that went down on my place was this big, huge, two-foot diameter uh, hickory tree um, that's probably 150, 200 years old. It'll be another 200 years before that system has come back to a similar place ecologically as it was yesterday. So something that happens real quick can have real long-term effects. So we need to be able to think of disturbances, and disturbances is anything like a wildfire, wind damage, clear-cut, flood, uh, driving over it with a tractor, earthquake, landslide, all these different events, a grazing event. When animals come through and they graze, you think about here's these beautiful grasses just about to, to set seed, and cattle come through and graze it all off. That sets that system back. It's got to recoup. Um, it has to rebuild its root system, start regrowing its top, and send up another seed shoot. It starts the system all over again. We need to be able to think of our farms as ecological systems with various different disturbance events in there. And if we think of uh, all of our actions, what we do, we're not just affecting uh, today's work. I'm not just moving the cows now. What I do here today when I'm moving the cows is affecting things 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the line. And it's not happening in a vacuum in ignorance. By understanding ecology, and this is why we're going through this, by understanding ecology and ecological processes, we have a rough idea of where things are going. And you'll see later on as we go through uh, tonight's presentation a lot more of uh, what I mean by that. Next slide. <clears throat> Here's a disturbance, for example, a fire I showed this last week. Um, there's different uh, types of disturbances. I had mentioned uh, the small scale, the quick ones. Uh, there are different types of disturbances in that there's small-scale ones like, like, uh, like, like the branch, the wind blew the branches off, uh, or there's long-term ones like there's an earthquake in California falls into the sea. That's a big long-term change. Other uh, disturbances that happen with regularity, really regular um, episodic disturbances. Winter is a disturbance. A lot of ice storms break branches, etc. That's very regular, very common, not as intense. Then there are other disturbances that may be more catastrophic but might be less frequent. Uh, wildfires with flames this big are hopefully a long-term event. And you can see that it is in this case because you can't burn down a 60-foot tall tree unless you first grow a 60-foot tall tree. It might take you 100 years to get one. So this is a big event, event somewhat uncommon, very catastrophic. It's not the end of the world. It just resets things again in a different uh, different uh, trajectory in uh, ecological succession. Next slide. So we're thinking of things on time scales, spatial scales, uh, and then events, disturbance. And here's a windstorm uh, on the west coast. You know, five minutes, everything changes. All of the system, uh, complete system resets. Like the chiropractor went a little bit too far and gave you a sidekick to the back of the neck instead of uh, making you feel better. Next slide. My phone just dinged. I better shut that off. All right, so um, we had mentioned scale. The scales matter. There's, there's various different, if we're going to understand ecosystems, um, if we look at the macro level, oh, yeah, I'm a macroecologist. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm studying oceans, continents, and their major component parts. Well, the middle phase, the meso-level ecosystems, they're things like the Great Plains you know, rolling hills, mountain ranges, and the micro-level uh, micro ecosystems are uh, landforms, 
individual forest stands, swamps, lakes, and this paper right here, just as an example, somebody, you know, fine scale, you even have to say it right up front, habitat associations of a terrestrial salamander, the role of environmental gradients, these like temperatures and rainfall differences through a period of time. If you look at some some organisms, they may never, you know, leave a, a 10 centimeter square area that's very micro scale, but all of the same processes that take place at this micro scale happen at this micro level, a macro level, excuse me, next slide. So we're zooming in and out and in and out by si uh, time and space. Next slide, please. <clears throat> and this, this was a slide I showed uh, last week. And if whatever we're, we're doing, whenever we're having our conversations uh, as restoration agriculture practitioners, we need to have an understanding within ourselves and when we're communicating with one another, kind of like at what level uh, is this particular effect taking place? Is this something that we noticed at the cellular level? Is it at the organ level, at the organism level, or is it something at the whole entire ecosphere level? Uh, what What scale level is this particular process and just as an example we'll get to it a little bit later too one of the things that's at this macro scale is climate you know the general overall uh, climate of a region is really not a lot we can do about that and what's even uh, more significant is something like uh, the bedrock the actual um, uh, you know physiognomy of the, of the land itself the physical geography we can't really change the fact that here in the upper Midwest we're on sandstone, limestone, uh, other places. I was just up in the Isle Royal a week or so ago. Uh, the island is mostly basalt. You can't change that. That's a macro, that's a macro effect uh, way out at the outer ring here. Next slide please. <clears throat> um, yeah, so, so uh, just to say to us, restoration agriculture land managers, we need to think at all scales. We need to think at the scale of one cow poop in a pasture. Does it have bug holes in it? Are dung beetles taking it and rolling it away? Uh, are there this kind of fly and that kind of fly? We, we want, need to operate at that level all the way out to the, to the global uh, scale in our thinking. How does uh, the climate affect what plants I'm going to choose as my, my perennial ecosystem? How does the, the geology affect the plants that I choose uh, to plant? So both, uh, both ends of this scale are important for us as practitioners. Next slide. <clears throat> now something that's um, <clears throat> uh, pretty fascinating uh, a way of understanding different ecosystems is to classify them by ecoregion or bioecoregion. And um, these, these uh, zones that we see on this map right here, this is the Bailey system of ecoclimactic regions. And uh, the ecoclimactic regions, I'm looking through some notes here, make sure I don't like misspeak on. Uh, <clears throat> what things might, might uh, be right here. This is, this is a combination of, of temperature, rainfall, uh, uh, temperature and rainfall interactions, 
day and night cycles. Like if you look at the northern polar regions and the southern polar regions, they have long days in the summertime, short days in the wintertime. Uh, and if you define things by similar climate patterns, not small-scale weather events, but general climate of a region, this is one way to uh, classify uh, bioregions. And you can, uh, Bailey's is the one that I've used the most often. There's also Koppen and Olson, and another one is called Holdridge's Life Zones. Uh, these are all basically the same thing, and what, what you'll find out is they all disagree slightly. You know, it's just like human beings. So Bailey you know, wrote his book and got all of his data together and puts his maps together and uh, combine them or, or you compare them with, with Holdridge and you combine them and com uh, compare them with Coffin and all that kind of stuff. These are just ways to understand. If you look at the, the Sahara region of northern Africa, if you try to grow anything in that yellow area that belongs in a green area, you might not have very much success. Or if you try to grow something pink in the yellow, these are just these are just like the duh kind of patterns. If if you want to go up to Greenland now and grow bananas, you can. You can play with the microclimate all you want, but what's the expense and what's the chance of success uh, if you go ahead and, and you try to do that? The easiest, most simple, most success, uh, most likely to be successful long term is to imitate uh, the, the natural patterns that exist in your area and no matter where you live around the world there are plant and animal species that will live together and support human life um, probably even in Antarctica um, though I haven't been homesteading in Antarctica yet. Next slide. And for the next few slides if somebody is a, a, a genius and a wizard it would be really great if they could uh, take these different uh, ecoclimatic regions uh, and then, then later on uh, soil types and so on and overlay them all so we can see where they, where they, where they correspond and where they don't correspond. Uh, this is uh, Holdridge's life zones. It's very similar to Bailey's um, ecoclimatic zones and if you were to do an overlay you would see that there's a lot of correspondences. What I think is uh, uh, useful about doing an overlay is if we see the areas where these patterns don't correspond, I think those are the spots for potential magic. Because uh, if you're looking at the plants uh, and animals, there's this kind here. If you're looking at soils, there's this kind here. You're looking at weather, it's this kind here. There's like opportunities for like a creative crossover in the places where they don't overlap. But like the center of the Sahara here, or the center of the Amazon, you better be doing center of Sahara and center of Amazon techniques and tactics or you're wasting your time. Next slide. You don't, you don't have to. <laughs> Go ahead. Here's, here's the uh, North America map um, based on the Koppen uh, climate classifications. You look at all these different names. These names are kind of important, see, because when we start talking about where we're from or, or what type of zone we're, we're trying to, to work in, it's easy to say, oh yeah, I live in a humid subtropical uh, oceanic highland climate. And then you go, oh, okay, right about there. So looking at these, you'll notice that the red down here in northern Mexico uh, has a simmer, similar climate as uh, Baja, uh, Mexico, Baja, California uh, area. The plants and animals that are in the red over in Mexico uh, would be similar as the ones in central and southern California. 
Likewise, the blue maritime in Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, uh, would be similar as the blue up by Great Slave and Great Bear Lake up in uh, Northwest Territories. And so if you live up in the Northwest Territories and you don't have a whole host of species at your disposal, go look over at Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, which is a similar climactic zone, see what they have, and then, then start using uh, likely candidates that will work in your eco-climactic zone. Next. So none of these, none of these maps agree with one another. They, these are all uh, guidelines to give us uh, uh, hints at what to do. Now, what's really fascinating, it really, um, uh, it bothers me as a creative kind of person, a guy who likes to breed plants and animals, um, is to look at this and what's fascinating is the number one top driver of of plant communities and animal communities around the world actually does happen to be uh, soil. Well, not exactly. It's not exactly the soil, it's the parent material of the soil. And so one can get into this little funny zone where I kind of stay. It's like, well, no, the, the soil doesn't drive the plant community. The plant community made the soil out of this parent material. So if you're in an in a area that has the big green that you see going up and down the middle of uh, uh, North America there. All a similar type of, of bedrock underneath it, all the yellow similar type of bedrock, the light green similar bedrock, you're just going to have similar plants there. So if you want to go down to the southeast USA where it's all yellow there, and if you want to do something from the orange up in Alaska, even if you're getting it from southern Alaska, southern Alaska Oregon and Washington, where you might have similar climate as like Virginia, or Georgia, you won't have the same amount of success if you stick with things that are more similar to your region in Georgia. It has almost everything to do with the, uh, with the bedrock of a place. And you think about it, if, if you like in my situation here, we have a dolomite limestone cap on top of sandstone. Dolomite is a calcium magnesium carbonate. Um, notice I said calcium magnesium and carbon. There weren't a lot of other minerals that I threw in there because well, they aren't there. Well, then the sandstone, it's a very high silica sand. So, you know, calcium, magnesium, um, carbon, and silica. Well, what about, you know, boron and copper and iron and all these other minerals that are necessary for plant and animal growth and for good health? They're deficient. That's where we get uh, our notion of soil deficiencies because if we have crops that have specific requirements, the bedrock will produce soil the plants and animals interacting with the bedrock will produce a soil that can only really only has the minerals that were available in that bedrock. So really, the it's the uh, geology, the underlying um, parent material of the uh, of the different ecozones that drives the vegetation that we see above ground. Next slide. Next slide. There he goes. And just this another picture, this describes the different soil orders. These correspond very, very well with the um, Bailey eco-climactic zones. That's, I'm, a, I'm a more of the Bailey, <laughs> Bailey zone guy because it more closely matches the uh, bedrock patterns, um, which is pretty fascinating. So next slide. So you notice these last couple, uh, first we were talking about climate. Well, then all of a sudden now we're talking about soil. So we're talking plants, we're talking climate, talking soil. There are different ways to understand the ecosystems that we're dealing with. Now, one of the things that affects climate, obviously, 
it's north to south. Uh, obviously, the North Pole, South Pole are much colder in the uh, in the winter times, cooler in the summer times. Uh, the equators are hotter. Well, elevation has everything to do with everything as well. As the altitude, the elevation in the, in the landscape increases, the air temperature drops by 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, not Celsius, per thousand feet of elevation gain. Every thousand feet you go up, it's approximately 300 miles either north or south toward the pole. And so we've already talked about, we've got different time scales that we're dealing with, you know, different uh, spatial scales, everything from a cow patty or a caribou dropping to the front range of the Rockies to the Great Plains. Um, now, we're, now we're talking different weather, different rainfall, different hot and cold, different elevations. Uh, if we can get this computer right here to operate with code, and there's all kinds of people doing code nowadays, and they're, they're acting as if they're pretty smart, they're just dealing with two factors, off or on. So zero and one, and zero and one, we can make computers that do this. Nature is zillions of different layers of code, different scales in time, different scales in place, uh, temperatures, soil types. The periodic table of the elements has what? How many zillion different uh, minerals available on it? The complexity of the systems that we're work working with is off the charts. That's why it's important to understand these different um, uh, classifications that we have here. So what I wanted to point out here on this slide as well, one is the uh, temperature change with elevation. Uh, also, the temperature and the soil, the climate affects the types of vegetation that live there, grasslands, chaparral, which is a shrubby, kind of a shrubby uh, grasslands, mixed conifer forest, taiga, which was the widely spaced conifers that we saw earlier, and then tundra, the very low-growing low growing, um, vegetation at the, at the extreme poles, and then, of course, ice cap, um, either way up high or way up north or way down south. Mount Kilimanjaro, right on the equator, has glaciers on top of it. It's like 17,000 feet high. Next slide. The, <clears throat> now, the physiographic method of describing ecosystems, it's not the climate zones. It's, it's not the soil types, you know, bedrock types. It's land forms, mountain ranges, mountain ranges, uh, drainage basins, large you know lake areas. Uh, this is a real useful way of distinguishing landscape ecosystems because your weather can change, climates can change. We you know so far we have evidence that our climate is changing pretty rapidly right now. But what's not going to change really rapidly are the mountains. Those Rocky Mountains aren't going away anytime soon. Uh, Unless you got places like Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, and Mount Hood, they could go away overnight. Uh, but that's a rad radically different uh, ball game. Um, the physiographic method. Uh, once again, I'd love to have somebody overlay uh, the ecoclimatic zones, the Holdridge's life zones, the uh, soil types, and then the uh, physiographic zones, just to see where they overlap and where they don't overlap, and where these uh, magical between spaces are because um, we could really get creative with those. And once again, look at the scale from on the right. Everything from a global scale to continental scale, North America, to California. We can even scale down smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually you're studying this one little bowl or pocket. There's a couple of videos that I did just looking at a tide pool. 
we can look at the ecology of a tide pool and learn so much about how that tide pool works that's on a micro scale or we look at the whole entire planet. Restoration agriculture land managers, we're going to look at all scales and do our best to understand both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. Next slide. And then um, I'm going to, because of time constraints, I'm going to call it on, I think, this one in the next two or three. Uh, if we start looking now, we can look at ecosystems and classify them according to their vegetation types. What kinds of plants are there? And if you look at the, uh, the, the words here, we've got tropical rainforests, semi, uh, tropical semi-deciduous forests, scrub woodlands, and so on and so on. This is where uh, we now want to start to focus in. And next week, we'll uh, zero in more on forest types. So within tropical rainforest, on our chart on the left, within tropical rainforest, there'll be this kind of tropical rainforest. And, and, and forest types are usually categorized by the, the major, the dominant tree species, the most long-lived tree species. So like in the uh, northern coniferous forest, we'll have you know uh, white pine, jack pine forest, dry pine forest. How many slides ahead do we have, uh, Wayne? Go to the next one, anyways, because I just I want to. We can burn through this real quick, because we'll repeat this. Um, go to the next one. That's the same thing. Climate based on vegetation. Next one. Okay, now now see how I've been I've been zooming in, going from the planet down to the down to the North America, down to the USA, now to Wisconsin. Here's the early pre-settlement vegetation, of Wisconsin. Now everybody out here, go to wherever you live and find the oldest records of the vegetation of your area that you could possibly find. Even, you know, paleological records, archaeological records on what it was once upon a time. They're useful for us. Next slide. <clears throat> and then <laughs> this is what it is now. Mostly uh, the dark green and through is uh, either hay, CRP. Uh, row crops or soybeans in Wisconsin. It's like, how did we go from a three-dimensional perennial ecosystem to dominated by soybeans? Well, that's the history of agriculture, and that's why it's so important that we have a restoration agriculture, that we restore the ecosystem processes that were in place, uh, cycling our nutrients, creating fresh, clean water, clean air, taking carbon out of the atmosphere, providing habitat for wildlife, pollinators, etc. Next slide. There we go. Now, everybody go home and find a, some sort of reference like this. Uh, I used this one, Wisconsin's Natural Communities. I know there's one for Minnesota. Uh, there was one for, for Alaska that are very similar to this. How to recognize them and where to find them. Next slide. Because this is where we're going to do our real work uh, on the ground. Wherever you live right now on your real estate, you are now going to imitate what is there or what should be there, what has been there, what's there in remnants. And just as a list right here, we've got like the Southern Oak Forest. Notice how it's, it's classified after the dominant tree type. Southern Red Oak Mixed Forest, Sugar Maple Basswood, uh, Dry Pine Forest. So let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> These are just different, different um, uh, plant uh, communities that are, that are part of Wisconsin. Next slide. And Pine barrens, what I like about the, this particular reference is that it describes a little bit about what it is, what this system is, how it works, some of its functions, its ecological succession pattern, next page. Some of the more spiffy wildlife 
you can see up top here, um, and the next one, in different parts of that ecosystem, like the dry pine uh, uh, woodlands, will have certain kind of grasslands within it that have its own little ecology going on. And this is, this is like the Rosetta Stone for me because as soon as I opened up this book and said, all right, if I got like dry pine forest, uh, what else is typical of a dry pine forest? Well, look, we've got American hazelnut. Anybody think of something to do with hazelnuts? I sure can. Uh, bracken fern. Well, I actually used to harvest ferns and sell them to a florist. Uh, and I've actually seen some of my ferns because I missed the florist, but I needed to get them to a, a wedding. So I delivered the ferns myself to a wedding. I saw the ferns that I had picked used at a wedding. So they're an economic product. Uh, blueberry. Has anyone ever had blueberries? Wow. Canada Mayflower is, I think it's an underutilized plant. It's a little plant about this big grows in the shade. It has these little berries on it that taste like garden peas. Those are, so hazelnut, fern, blueberry, mayflower, uh, lowbush blueberry, false salt. Six plants right there, huckleberry, seven. Uh, seven plants right there that are all economic. Uh, prairie redroot. Um, I wonder if that's the same thing as bloodroot. I'm not quite sure. Sand cherry. Anybody had anything to do with cherries before? So, geez, I got nine or ten different potential crops. All I have to do is imitate the natural plant communities in my area and I can set up a perennial ecology on doing genuine ecological restoration, hence the restoration in restoration agriculture. We're maintaining this, this restoration work by harvesting yields and selling them. Uh, and some of the important uh, contributors or uh, important components are the animals. We can't underestimate the importance of animals in ecosystems. I think it's the next slide. And we can, yeah. And some of the mammals, look at this up in the upper right, coyotes and chipmunks and foxes and squirrels. Well, that's what you'll see at the park now, but what about the large herbivores? What about the deer, elk, moose, and bison that were all native, that are native to Wisconsin? What about macedons, six species of giant sloth, armadillos, camels, two species of giraffes that were recently native to Wisconsin? All right, fine. If we can't do all those, let's do cattles and yaks and water buffalo, sheep, goats, pigs, horses, ducks, geese, chickens, guineas. This should be obvious by now that what we're doing is ecological restoration. We are landscape scale ecologists. We're going to be doing it at the farm or ranch scale. And we're going to be using these particular systems that are our natural uh, ecosystems. We'll substitute preferred and improved uh, varieties for all of these uh, other varieties there. And we will manage it uh, as an ecological system, harvest the yields, and uh, pay our bills along the way. And that's what I have for the presentation tonight. We'll repeat a little bit of this tail end. Um, let's keep it right at there, right at that one there, uh, Wayne. That's the last one. Oh, I was going to go to the one where your mind's blowing up. So I, I Oh, you can do that. That's fine. <laughs> Which one that's did you want? The, the, back at the, uh, at the uh, Oak Savannah one. That's fine. That's, that right there, I've showed that slide a zillion times. That's exactly what I did. I went right to that book and I picked out the species from, and in this case it's tall to short from the Fagaceae down to the Raspberries, Bates, Currents, Forage, and Arnolds. That is the pattern of most of my farm. And if I walk away from it, it's all perennial. It takes care of itself. It will run itself as a natural ecosystem. If I leave it alone and let it run itself as a natural ecosystem, it goes through succession and it, and it changes and it may not have the crops in the right blend that will generate me the incomes that I need to pay my bills, 
So then I have to go in and disturb the site with some sort of management. Either I cut trees, I grow mushrooms, I graze more animals, I have controlled burns. Whatever it is that I do, I do a, a landscape uh, entry, harvest a yield in order to maintain that system in somewhat of an ecological balance and, and to derive an economic livelihood. And that's what I have for this evening. And questions, and I don't have that toolbar anymore, uh, Wayne. Um, I don't think I could show it. I, I've got all the questions here, and there's, there's not a lot yet. But maybe if some other folks have some. How much time do you have, Mark? Um, well, it says 7.36, so I've got like 10 minutes at the moment. All right, awesome. Um, so uh, uh, somebody made a comment. Eric actually talked about how I think he might be raising his hand even and saying that it would be nice to have a software where all these things could be different layers that you can zoom in and out, and, and that would be awesome. Um, what, you know, um, Nicholas says, what are good resources to find this information? G-double-O uh, goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, it, I, I started at a library and I went to all these different sections on nature and, and natural resources and piece it together that way and that was you know this this particular slide that we're looking at right here uh, that particular one was put together in 1984 you know so this information is out there and available we just have to find it that book uh, plant communities or natural communities of Wisconsin I know there's uh, books from several different states that have that uh, <clears throat> if uh, maybe science news if you go to their website they might have a book section where you could find it that's where uh, I get a lot of uh, interesting stuff is from Science News uh, book site. But back to the software thing, think about what's happening right now. All right, and, and this, this is uh, not intended to be funny at all. This is no joke. We're talking serious business here. We're living on a planet with the, the, the keystone species, human beings. These are the organisms that have the most impact on the planetary environment as a whole. And as a species, in aggregate, uh, our economy is destroying everything as fast as it can in order for us to have our livelihood. That can't last forever. Is it going to last 10 years, 1,000 years? We have no idea how long it's going to last. Um, you can't continue to destroy and degrade your resource base and get yields from that. So what has to happen at some point in time is we have to start with individual points. And we're starting now a huge movement worldwide that is going to make the change one piece of property at a time. You and you and you and you, and we are landscape ecologists, we are restoration ecologists, we're restoration agriculture ecologists, and we need to start creating refugia of the major species of our regions to keep the, the biotic integrity, uh, keep that web from raveling apart. We need to hold it all together, and it's up to us and I think long term, we need to be tracking what we do. So the guy who was mentioning software, we need to track all of this because we need to understand as time goes on, nobody yet has done ecological restoration at uh, you know, state and continental scale. So all of us uh, smaller people who are doing it uh, bit by bit, we are actually part of a larger aggregate movement doing this. What is the the net effect ecologically of all of our activities. We need to know that and some, you know, some good tracking software 
uh, go out and plant your trees and shrubs and bushes and vines first and feed yourself and your family and others, then develop the software. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to take you off the hook on one here. Sam asks, do you think that university ecology has something to offer restoration agriculture? What about agroecology? Before you answer, think about that for a second. I'm going to jump in and having been a college professor for a number of years and still am on an adjunct basis. There's certainly something that any kind of education will always offer you. What we hope that we're doing mm -hmm. here through this, this whole program that we're, we're, we're calling EAT um, and having people like Mark and myself and a number of others really who are doers. We've lived our lives doing what we're mm -hmm. going to teach about. That's not often what you get in a an, in an university setting. And I'm not, I'm not indicting any given location or any given school or anything. It's just not what those folks do. They were, most of them went through programs all the way through PhDs. They might have went into postdocs. And they've never done what Mark's teaching. That's a criticism that, that a lot of us would have, frankly. So that, that's my take on it. Mark, you go ahead. And, and, it, and it's comment. not necessarily a criticism. It's just an observation. It's a fact is that I have lived within ecosystems intentionally, consciously, as a trained ecologist for the past 30 years of my life. I've interacted with those ecosystems directly, personally, using ecological knowledge and principles. Uh, and I've derived my economic livelihood from that interaction. There are no professors anywhere. There are no permaculture designers anywhere that have done that. And I'm, I'm not saying that they're wrong. Um, one of the reasons why we're having these, these webinars is to, to do a little explanation to see why is it that what we're talking about is radically different than so much of what everybody else is talking about. And is the university education uh, important? If you're looking to do it in order to get a job, I'd like to discourage you from that. If you're looking to do it to learn ecological principles, absolutely. We need, we need more people who are thinking permanent agriculture, perennial agriculture, permanent culture, a long-term ecological sustainability of human habitation on this planet. We need more people within academia, within you know, agencies, uh, more people thinking in that particular direction. Um, but no matter what you do or where you live, wherever you live, your home, <clears throat> start permaculture in your home, restoration ag, however big your property is, start at home. And if you're not doing it, you miss the whole point. Awesome. You know what, guys? We're going to uh, we're going to cut it here. I think we got most of the questions. Um, if you like this, would you maybe just throw a one up on the board here so I can let let Mark see it and if this was good for you. Um, We'll just be continuing this week to week to week. Um, everybody that's here, I did say something in a couple of the announcements that I put out and get a lots of ones here, Mark, so everybody's thanking you. Um, I said that we'd do a little gift for somebody who stays around. It was pretty, pretty cool. We, we've had as many people that started this that are here at the end. That means that we're really getting great intention. Um, by the way, I don't know what book. Brad asked, maybe I'll one more question here. What was the name of the book again? Brad, maybe ask a little more specifically. Mark talked about a bunch of books here. Um, so um, put another the one, one up there. One on, the, uh, one on the, the meso scale that's more like on the farm and ranch scale was for Wisconsin was uh, Natural Plant Communities of Wisconsin. Yeah, and that's, and the, one yeah. that's the one he yeah. asked. That's the one he asked. That's a Rosetta Stone. You just go to a place, you open it up, and you just pick out the species. It's, it's so cookie cutter. It's not funny. It's great.
So did you get that, Brad? And, and this will be recorded. I'm going to just say that. This is being recorded. It's really likely that there'll be a replay. Um, we've had great luck with it so far. All of these are replayed, folks. But because you guys are all here, I'm going to just sort of randomly do something. I'm going to pick one of you just by flipping through the list and, and whatever my cursor ends up on it does. I'm going to give you a little gift here. And that person is John S., who's still on here. John, you have won a little gift. We are going to give you a donation from Eat, a copy of Mark's book that I'm going to, that I'm going to throw in. So if you've already got it, John, we'll figure out something else for you. Um, I'm sure, Mark, we can even convince him to, uh, to autograph it, but that's restoration. <laughs> 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 that's I can't hear a thing. That's... <laughs> so, John, John S., you have won yourself a book. And everybody, it's awesome having you all here. Same time, same station a week from now. Tell your friends about this and tell them to get in quick, and here's why. I've said this before, and it's not going to happen overnight. But we're getting so big with this that, frankly, and I've said it from the start, sometime down the road, if you haven't gotten involved early like all of you have, so you don't have to worry about it, but if your friends don't, they're going to be paying for this. This is not going to be free forever. This is too good of information. And I, I've said it as we were introducing this, we're modeling something after something called the OMG system that's out there that's got tens of thousands of people involved in it now. The people that do that, and it's learning how to be an internet marketer, they pay $700 a month for it. I pay $700 a month. I'm a member of it. Down the road, as this gains traction two, three, five years from now, you know, that's going to be what this thing's going to cost. You folks are all going to be in it for life if you stay involved with us. So anyway, thank you for all coming. Join the Facebook group. Tell people there what you're doing, why you're there, what we can give you help with. There's been all kinds of other people that have done that already. Go on there and see really neat stories. Um, got some other questions coming in here, and, and we'll, we'll grab those for you. I'm going to let Mark go. Um, and Eric, you've got a bunch of comments. Eric's a good friend of mine. Mark, I'll make sure I get questions from him. He's out in Washington. He's actually out at a really cool place right now, and we're going to probably try to see if we can get him give a, a little story about what he's done uh, doing out there at some point. He says, thanks. Everybody's saying thanks. I'm going to turn off the recording now, everybody. And say good night, Mark. Thanks again. Hopefully, too many, not too many trees went down. And uh, you and I will talk. I know in between now and next week. But thanks, and thanks everybody for being here. Hey everybody, I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the Eat Community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat community podcast.